Buckle your seatbelts, friends, because we are about to go deep. What things really exist? Our guest today, Dr. J.P. Moreland, has written a comprehensive case for the existence of the soul. It's called the substance of consciousness. But it animates the body, and it's what makes the body living. The body was purely physical and was more or less just a physical machine. Then it's still a body. Some people might be thinking, okay, what is the soul? JP, you ready to go, my friend? Well, Dr. McDowell, it's always a privilege to be with you. (laughs) Thanks. Well, let's jump right in. Before we talk about your case for the soul, let's define some terms. What do you mean by substance dualism and then what you call mere substance dualism? Well, historically, substance dualism meant that there is a soul and a body and they are two different substances that causally interact with one another. So that would mean, for example, that that my soul can cause my body to move if I will to raise my hand, or if uh, my body gets stuck with a pin, I will feel a sensation of pain in my soul. Now, in contemporary terms, the notion of substance dualism has more or less given up the idea of the body being a substance in its own right. So so I'm trying to capture that when I uh, defend in this book with my colleague Brandon Rickabaugh, what what we call generic substance dualism. And, And that means the following, that I am an immaterial soul I have a body, and the two are not the same thing, but are related to one another in some way. So I am a soul that has a body. The two are not the same thing, and they relate Mm -hmm. to one another in some way or other. And so that leaves the door open for several different versions of of generic substance dualism to still be a part of the family, the bigger family. Gotcha. We won't go into some of those particulars that you do in the book, but at this age, substance dualism is that a human being is both body and soul, and they interact in some fashion. For simplicity's sake, we'll, we'll, we'll keep it there. Now, I don't think there's a lot of questions about what people would mean by what is the body, but some people might be thinking, okay, what is the soul? Maybe explain what you mean by the soul so we have clarity on that. That's a very, very, very good question. Um, there are, would be two, two views, and uh, one view would be if you follow the thought of uh, the, the early modern philosopher Descartes, and the other view would be if you follow the thought of Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. So that the, the first view is that the soul is an immaterial substance or thing. What I mean by substance is an individual particular thing. So the soul is an individual thing that has the properties of consciousness. And so the soul would be a particular individual reality that that has the properties of uh, having sensations and having thoughts and having beliefs of different kinds, perhaps having desires. Uh, and being able to exercise uh, willpower to, to choose and act. 
So in that definition, the soul is what contains and unifies our consciousness. Hmm. Now, the uh, Aristotelian uh, Thomistic view goes beyond that and says that the, the soul is a, a sub, an individual thing or if you want a substance or substance-like thing. So let's just say it's a particular individual reality that contains the properties and the powers of consciousness and the properties and powers of life. So the soul doesn't just contain consciousness, but it animates the body, and it's what makes the body living. For Descartes, the soul simply contains our powers of conscious uh, thought and, and feeling and so on. The body was purely physical and was more or less just a physical machine. And as long as the body was functioning, even if it was sustained by an artificial respirator of some kind, then it's still a body. It's a, still a physical object that's, that's moving in various ways. Uh, but for Aquinas... Uh, the the soul is is informs the body and gives it life and what that means is if the soul is no longer in the body it's not a body any longer it's a dead corpse so it is the soul that is responsible for the life of the body on that view so it's a, an immaterial okay. particular thing that either contains the powers and abilities of consciousness or consciousness and the powers of life and animating a body. So on this view, death then is when the soul leaves the body and they're separated permanently. Yes, that's right. Okay. And there will be different tests for how when that happens, mm. but but the metaphysical fact of death is when the soul uh, leaves the body uh, permanently. Okay, super helpful. JP, you're like me. You talk with your hands and get excited. It's rocking the, the screen a little bit and tapping. So you're going to have to contain yourself for a minute. I love no, the excitement about the soul. <laughs> Do your best is all I can ask. Okay, a couple more terms because we're going so deep. It's important that we define what is consciousness what is it like and how do we study it? Well, a simple definition would be consciousness is what you're aware of when you introspect. Hmm. So uh, imagine a person waking up from surgery and he's in the recovery room and that dude is out. And all of a sudden he's, he starts feeling a throb in his knee. And then, then he has the thought, I, I think I'm I think I'm home and I'm going to go to surgery today because he's forgotten that he had surgery, and then oh no he has this belief. Wait a minute, I just I just had surgery and I'm recovering, and then he feels thirsty, and he chooses to 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 yell out. If anybody can hear my voice, would you please bring me something to drink? So what that person is regaining is consciousness. And consciousness involves things like sensations of a pain or the taste of a lemon, a thought or a belief or a desire or an act of free choice. 
One thing that it seems conscious states have is that any state of consciousness, so you're having a state of a thought or you're thinking about lunch or perhaps you're, desire, you're feeling a desire for uh, something cold to drink or you're having a sensation of pain. There is always a what it is like hmm. to be in that state of consciousness. So there's a what it's like to be a pain. There's a what it's like to be a desire for ice cream. But there is no what it's like to be an electron. There's no what it's like to be negative hmm. charge. So it seems like only conscious states have a what it is like uh, to be in that state. Hmm. Gotcha. That makes sense. That's helpful. Okay, so we've explained what we mean by substance dualism, the soul, consciousness, and the what it is like that we really are aware of through introspection. What is considered the hard problem of consciousness? Now we're getting to the level of worldview, and now that we've de described what this phenomena is, we're asking what worldviews can best explain it. So maybe lay out for us what the hard problem of consciousness is and maybe the challenge that it poses for certain worldviews. Well, the hard problem of consciousness is why consciousness appeared in the first place. Hmm. I mean, if you begin with matter in the Big Bang and if you don't ask what caused it, the history of the universe is just a history of the rearrangement of matter according to the laws of chemistry and physics and so on. And so the history of the universe will be a history of matter forming uh, larger complex arrangements of atoms and molecules and so on. Now, all of a sudden, you get popping into existence something that has never existed before in the whole history of the universe, and that is sensations and thoughts and feelings and beliefs, conscious states. So the question is, how could there be such a thing as consciousness coming from brute matter, which doesn't even have the potential for consciousness? Mm -hmm. and, and why are certain states of consciousness correlated with certain states of the brain? So for example, when a certain neuron called a C-fiber fires in your brain, that is correlated with a sensation of pain. But why isn't uh, that C-fiber firing mm. correlated with the taste of cherry pie? Uh, there doesn't seem to be, the, the relationship between the two appears to be contingent. That means it could have been different. And that raises the question, which is the hard problem. Mm. Not only why is there such a thing as consciousness to begin with, but why are the specific conscious brain correlations that way instead of some other way? Mm. So essentially, the hard problem of consciousness is where does this phenomenon come from in a purely material world? It seems to be qualitatively different, not just quantitatively different. So it, it's a problem for worldviews in particular that tend to describe and explain the world through physical interaction. That seems to be the heart of it. Did I catch that? You absolutely did. I think the naturalist who believes that science and science alone tells us what's real will tend to reduce everything to things that exist that, that physics and chemistry study. Well, if that's true, then, then 
the existence of consciousness would be a case of getting something out of nothing. And you can't get something from nothing. And so it raises a real pressure problem mm. on naturalists who don't want to believe there's anything but the physical universe. That's really helpful. We're going to get to some of these explanations and your critique of them and your positive case for the soul. But you have a pretty provocative statement in the book that I highlighted and I circled. And it didn't surprise me because I've known you for probably almost three decades now, which is pretty cool. Here's what you wrote in the book. You said... Substance dualism, again, the idea that human beings are body and soul, substance dualism has not been tried and found wanting so much as it has been judged unacceptable and left untried. Explain what you mean and uh, defend that statement. Well, in the 1800s, you have in Europe the uh, the emergence of a of a, a doctrine called scientism and that's the idea that the only way that we can know what's true about reality is through the hard sciences especially physics and, and then chemistry and geology and biology okay so the idea was that anything that cannot be empirically measured and tested in, in the science laboratory, and that is not a respectable scientific entity, like an electron is respectable in a magnetic field and so on. Um, you know, you can believe it if you want to, but there's no, you, there's no evidence one way or the other for it. And probably uh, things don't exist that aren't the things that we know are real through the hard sciences. And so the idea that consciousness was an immaterial uh, phenomenon and that there was this uh, soul that that uh, contained consciousness kind of went the way of the dodo bird. It became extinct. And it wasn't because it was argued against successfully. It fell out of favor because you can't measure conscious states in the same way you can measure brain states. And there were attempts in the first three decades of the 19th century to, because to, all the psychologists then were Cartesian dualists, and they tried to measure, uh, let's say, pain uh, in terms of whether it was intense or not. The problem was the laboratories all over the country got different results because they couldn't be precise enough in measuring consciousness. Well, that caused scientists to want to just forget about consciousness and start focusing on the brain and body movements and things of that sort. So it was because holding that we are brains or our, our physical nervous system was more amenable to scientific measurement that the idea of a soul or immaterial consciousness mm -hmm lost favor, uh, it wasn't argued out of existence. It was more or less just dismissed because mm. we're not interested in that kind of stuff. Mm. That, that's essentially what I mean. Okay, that's, that's really helpful. Now, you also make another provocative statement. As you say that substance dualism is making a comeback. What do you mean by making a comeback? In what circles are you talking about? And uh, give us the evidence for that bold claim. Right. Well, around 19, 
80-ish. You have secular material, physicalists, materialists, who from about 1930 up until for 50 years had tried different forms of just complete physicalism, that we are just totally physical and only physical. The problem is that just didn't work hmm. because consciousness resisted stubbornly being identified with, with states of the brain or the nervous system. And that's because there are things that characterize consciousness that don't characterize matter. For example, a thought has intentionality. It's about something. So I have a thought about the apple or a, a belief about the city of London, but no brain state is about anything. Again, a thought can be true or false, but brain states can't be true or false. Uh, there's a what it's like to conscious states, which we already mentioned, and not brain states. And so it, materialists like John Searle and, and even Jaguan Kim, a well-known materialist, began to admit that at least consciousness was no longer to be treated as physical. And so it, it was treated as an emergent property in the brain. And so the brain was still physical, but somehow when the brain reached the right level of complexity, mm. a really brand new thing called immaterial consciousness rose into existence. And uh, so they were property dualists. That meant that they believed that conscious properties were not physical but they still believed that the possessor or the thing that had consciousness was the physical brain and not a self. The problem is that, as we'll see later in our time, there, there are facts about us, like the fact that we have free will, arguably, mm -hmm. that cannot be explained if I'm a brain. And mm -hmm. so it, there has been a renewal of scholarly work that is being done by substance dualists. And this revival is being uh, noted across the discipline. And I think our book, <clears throat> The Substance of Consciousness, at least the, the critics are saying that this is going to contribute significantly to this new wave of substance dualist scholarship. I think there's no debate about that as long as we can get the word out. And that's in part what we're doing here. So even if people disagree with you, they need to wrestle with the force of the arguments that you make and help move the ball forward with conversation. That would be a value in itself. All right. So we've defined our terms. We've talked about what's at stake. Let's start, start shifting towards your critique a little bit of other forms trying to explain uh, consciousness and your case for the soul. So one question would be, why can't we just reduce mental states to brain states? So Paul Churchland has argued that sound is just a train of compression waves traveling through air. Light is just electromagnetic waves. Warmth is identical with low average molecular kinetic energy. And similarly, things like color can be reduced. Why can't we just reduce these kind of mental events and sensations down to brain states? Well, let's just begin with, with color, for example. Um, color cannot be reduced to, or that just means identified with, a, brain, a, a wavelength of light. And the reason is that there are things that are true about colors mm. 
that aren't true about wavelengths of light, and so they can't be the same thing. This is called the law of identity. If X is identical to Y, so that water is identical to H2O, then whatever's true of water will be true of H2O and vice versa, because they're not two things, they're the same thing. If you can find one thing true of water that's not true of H2O, then they can't be the same thing. So uh, red is, is darker than yellow, but no wavelength is darker than any other wavelength. One wavelength mm. can be longer than another wavelength or could vibrate more rapidly than another wavelength, mm. but a wavelength isn't lighter or darker than another wavelength. Um, wavelengths are rapidly moving and vibrating, but colors are stationary. They're on the surface of an object and they're just, they're not moving. They're just there. So it's, and I can add other things. It's clear sure. that color has features that wavelengths don't and vice versa. So they can't be the same thing. The only thing science has discovered is that there is a correlation, maybe even a causal relationship mm -hmm. between wavelengths and colors. What I mean is that every time a color is, appears, there might be a wavelength of light that's associated with it. And that wavelength of light Perhaps the apple absorbs a wavelength and reflects another wavelength, and that causes the surface to be colored red. So redness may be caused by wavelengths, but it's not the same thing as a wavelength. Now, the same thing is true of brain states and mental mm. states. Um, take, take a pain if you, get, if you have a severe pain in your knee. There is a what it is like that is the very essence of that pain. Um, it wouldn't if, if you experienced the pleasurable taste of, a, of strawberry shortcake after you got stuck with a pin on the knee, uh, you would be pretty wired, wire, weirdly wired, but you wouldn't be in pain. You would be experiencing a pleasurable taste of strawberry shortcake. So the very essence of a pain is the what it is like to be in pain. There is no what it is like to be in a certain C-fiber firing configuration. Neurons can be described exhaustively using scientific language. If you want to describe a neuron as a cell in the brain, and if you want to describe it, you can appeal to things like calcium ions and how they flow uh, down uh, the uh, uh, dendrons and the axles of, of, of the neuron and how the movement causes a little spark of electricity uh, in a little gap between one neuron and the other called a synapse. It doesn't matter if you remember the words, but we can describe, Sean, a neuron exhaustively in third person scientific language but one thing is left out and there is no description of what it is like to be in pain that is described by what we learn from first person awareness 
of what is going on within us. Whereas the neuron is described by a third person description of an object, the neuron in your brain, uh, using scientific language. And so the two are completely different, but that doesn't show they're not correlated. But that's the reason that you can't reduce pain to a neuron firing because there are things that are true of pains that aren't true of neurons firing and vice versa. That's really helpful. With and By the way, you've mentioned strawberry shortcake and cherry. When this is done, I'm going to take you for dessert, just so you know. I'm you ready to go, buddy. <laughs> Good. Um, we go. Now, with, so with, with high school students, obviously we're colleagues at Biola Talbot School of Theology, but I still teach one high school Bible class. And I'll say, if Professor McDowell is Spider-Man, we're going to have all the same properties together, both 150 pounds, both five foot nine. But if I'm from California and Spider-Man's from New York, then I'm not identical to Spider-Man or Peter Parker. So if light just is electromagnetic waves... They will share all the properties in common. But your point is light can be brighter and less bright, but electromagnetic waves aren't going to have the property of brightness. They'll have other kinds of properties. Therefore, light might be correlated always with electromagnetic waves, maybe caused by it, but not reducible to and not identical with electromagnetic waves. Now, the same would be with pain. This is really helpful with students. I'll say, okay, describe pain for me in physical terms. And somebody will say a C-fiber firing. And then as I push back a little bit, they begin to realize that the essence of pain is a feeling of hurtfulness yes. that could have been experienced in potentially a different physical base if we had silicon bodies. Yes. Therefore, pain cannot be reduced just to the physical state. So what we've done so far is we're critiquing some of these naturalistic or physicalist attempts to reduce mental things down to the physical. It doesn't work because they share different properties. Did I sum that up well? Wonderful. I couldn't have done it better myself. That's exactly right. And it's important for people to remember. We are When we're asking, can a conscious state be this reduced to a brain state we're asking the question of what a conscious state is we want to know mm. what one is is it identical to a brain state that's very different than asking the question what causes the conscious state or what has to be working in the brain before you can feel a conscious state. Mm. So, I mean, if you give me, uh, anesthetize my gums at the dentist chair, I will not feel pain when the dentist drills my teeth. But that doesn't show that pain is identical to those nerves firing in my gums. All that shows is that before a pain can occur within my conscious life, Certain things in my body have got to be working. Gotcha. But this means that body and soul work mm. together, not that they have the same properties. That's great. That's very helpful. Now let's let's shift to another provocative claim in the book where we're starting to gonna start moving towards the positive case for substance dualism. 
You say, quote, here are two widely acknowledged, even by steadfast detractors, two widely acknowledged points. Physicalism seems false to nearly everyone, while substance dualism seems obviously true. Now, how much stock should we put in these seemings that people have that I seem to be body and soul, and it seems that physicalism is false, especially because there's a lot of things that seem like they're common sense, that like a table is physical all the way through, or the sun is rising and the sun is setting. How much stock do we put in the fact that you say is nearly universal, that it seems like physicalism is false, and that dualism seems obviously true? I think that the, wor the word seems just means it appears to be this way to me. That's the way it, it seems or appears to me to, to be. Okay. I think that if cross-culturally, so that this just can't be across a cultural phenomenon, if human beings around the world and throughout their history if things seem a certain way to them, and they're almost all in agreement about that, then that doesn't show their prove their truth that they're right about it. But what it mm -hmm. does is it places a substantial burden of proof on those who are going to disregard the way things seem, because if a, you know if an object uh, seems uh, a certain way to me, it usually is that way. I don't, my, my senses can be wrong sometimes, but we generally trust the way things appear to us unless we have good reason to believe the opposite. And okay. so we did find a good reason to believe that the sun doesn't literally rise and set. And so the way things seem to us has a very nice explanation that explains why it seems that way, even though it's not that way. But that's not true when it comes to th the fact that um, I seem to be different from my body and I seem to be the kind of thing that is capable of surviving in, in some afterlife when my body is fragmenting in the grave and deteriorating. And so what this does is that's not doesn't prove it, but it does place the burden of proof that physicalists have not yet met. And so this has surfaced what is called the hard meta problem of consciousness. Earlier, we looked at the hard problem of consciousness. Why is there consciousness to begin with? And this is called the hard meta problem of consciousness. And here's what the problem is. If physicalism is true, why does everybody in the world from Neanderthals to the present, believe that they're souls that could survive the death of their bodies. In other words, why is everybody some kind of substance dualist? There have been at least 30 studies that in our book, The Substance of Consciousness, we document at least 30 studies, mm. Sean, that psychologists have done on little children. Mm. And they are naturally Cartesian dualists. One <laughs> psychologist said they don't have to be taught that they're a soul, by the time they're three or four, they naturally recognize that they're different than their bodies and brains. 
and there's an there's a little incipient belief that of survival after death that they already have. This is true in atheist cultures. This is true before they have religious training. This is this is true before they're old enough to even understand religious doctrine. So it can't be due to indoctrination from the culture. This this is a spontaneous formation of a belief about ourselves that little children automatically have all over the world. They're natural born dualists is what the studies have shown. Everybody believes that they're non-physical and different from their body, except for a few people who have been indoctrinated that that is a stupid thing to believe. Mm. And I think that the reason people might have questions about the soul is they've been told, well, that's not scientific. And so you should give it up. Or in atheist countries, when they start wanting to push a materialist agenda after a few generations, they, they talk children out of believing in the soul. So now the hard problem is, what, where would anybody come up with the idea of a soul if physicalism is true? I mean, after all, no one had ever experienced one. It, it's an almost impossible thing to explain why everybody's a, a Cartesian dualist. And, and so they have got to answer that question. And what they have to say is that our awareness of ourselves, when we just focus on us, when I'm trying to focus on my own self, or maybe close my eyes and, and wonder what's going on inside of me right now, what am I feeling, that I am systematically deluded about what I find. Because what I'm really aware of are, is my brain, not something that hurts or that is immaterial or not some ego or self, but I'm just aware of part of my brain. I will tell you, Sean, I'm 75 years old. There has never been one time in my life when I've ever been introspectively aware of my brain. Hmm. In fact, if I only relied on what I knew by direct awareness, I wouldn't even know I had a brain. I know I have a brain because I know that other people have brains and I've seen when you open their heads, they have a brain and surgery, and I'm very analogous to them. So obviously, it's most reasonable for me to know I've got a brain, but I'm not aware of it by introspective awareness. The dualist has an answer to the question. The reason everybody's a dualist is because we have souls and we're just aware of ourselves. Hmm. It's kind of a simple common sense answer, but I think that's in its favor. But the physicalist doesn't have a good answer to that question and they need to offer us one because they have a fact that they've got to explain. Okay, so that's they, really how. Oh, I'm sorry. And if they don't explain that fact, and we do, that's a problem. Mm. Okay, that's helpful. So these C means that it appears to children across culture. You have examples of the book Across Time that yes. human beings understand themselves as body and soul in some sense. And yes. that identity can continue after the grave, That's uh, right. after death. That makes sense in a theistic worldview, a substance dualist position. But within physicalism, it would seem to me that the only explanation could be some kind of evolutionary story, wouldn't it be? That's about the only thing you can come up with. I mean, you could say that people were indoctrinated by religion to believe this. But one okay. number one, atheist countries, little children are born and they, they automatically are dualists. Mm. 
And uh, little children are automatically dualists without having understood any religious teaching. It's before they even form those religious concepts. So you can't explain it by, by religious indoctrination. The evolutionary explanation is going to be the only one. And here's where evolutionary explanations, as, as Thomas Nagel, the famous atheist, said, embarrasses itself because it's used to explain every single thing in sight, mm. including things that are beyond its ability to explain. Mm. I mean, how is having a concept of, of me being a soul survival enhancing? I mean, you would think that if, if organisms began to believe that, they would be less concerned about their bodily death because they would realize that they were going to be happier in an afterlife without their body. So it might actually contribute to organisms not being concerned about being eaten or dying. They, 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 they might want to go. In other words, you can explain evolutionary advantage of the belief and the disadvantage of it both equally well. So evolution doesn't explain uh, the origin of this belief at all. In some ways, if we do attribute it to evolution, then it raises the question if this belief that of substance dualism is so deeply ingrained, it's strong, and it's so diverse, then what other beliefs do we hold that seem to be true are also mistaken if we give this one up? Now, that is a very separate argument we don't have to go down to, but would seemingly follow if we explain this away in a purely naturalistic evolutionary fashion. Well, and if you're going to be consistent, you've got to follow the question you raised to its logical conclusion. And you have to start asking about these other entities. And so at the end of the day, you've got to say, well, what is my, what's left in my worldview? I mean, does it really explain the, the world and life as I experience it every day? And the answer turns out it's pretty lean stuff. It's mm. pretty lean. All right, friends, we're here with Dr. J.P. Moreland, who's committed his life to apologetics, philosophy, really in particular, has a life tome, you might say, called The Substance of Consciousness. We're going to unpack it more, but make sure you write your comments in and your questions, your toughest challenges. Uh, he invites them and deals with his top critics in this book, and we're going live on Friday uh, to take these together. So make them sweet and short and to the point best chance that we will take it all right now you mentioned we a couple times that death is the separation of the body from the soul do you think near-death experiences in any way contribute towards the case for substance dualism and if so how well they do so very powerfully hmm. and they do so uh sean in two ways now let's go back to the law of identity it says that if uh, if uh, if you're identical to Spider-Man, then everything true of you will be true of Spider-Man and vice versa. Mm -hmm. If there's one thing that's true of Spider-Man that isn't true of you, then you're not the same. Okay. But it's also the case that if there's one thing possibly true of you that wouldn't be possibly true of Spider-Man, then even if those aren't actual, if they're at least possible, then you can't be the same thing. Let me give you an example. Uh, you said, uh, uh, suppose that you're from California, but Spider-Man was from New York. Well, suppose that both of you were from California, but suppose that we knew 
that there was something about your makeup where it was not even possible for you to have been born outside of California. Uh, let's just assume there was something about your biology that that geographical location was essential for you to, to be born. Okay. okay. So you, you're not even possibly able to be born outside of California. Now, let's suppose that Spider-Man is born in California, just like you are, but he could at least possibly have been born in New York, okay? So that means that there's something that's possible about Spider-Man, even though it's not true, but it's possibly true, that's not possibly true about you, and that's enough to show you're not the same thing. Are you with me on that? Yep. Okay. So if, if we had two little piles of grain and they both were the same color of white and they had the same shape and the same weight and everything, and, and we were going to annihilate both of them, but we knew that if we possibly put one in water, it would dissolve, but the other pile wouldn't dissolve if it was put in water, even though we would never put them in water because we're going to burn both of them up before we have a chance to. The simple fact that one could dissolve if it were put in and the other couldn't is enough. Well, now listen to this argument. I am the kind of thing that could at least possibly survive in a disembodied state after I die. My brain and body not only do not survive the death of my brain and body, but they couldn't even possibly survive in a disembodied state after the death of my body. I have no idea what it would mean to say my brain could exist hmm. disembodied. So one thing I know about my brain is not only my body, I'll just say brain for simplicity. I know that my brain is not going to survive the death of my brain and body, but I know that it couldn't even possibly survive. Now, maybe I don't survive in the afterlife. Maybe the, all these near-death stories are false. But they're surely possibly true. I mean, I debated, I with two Christians debated three atheists on life after death for six hours over two days. Wow. And the three atheists were all willing to allow the evidence to decide the issue. And their argument was that there's not enough evidence for, for a life after death. Well, I pointed out that the fact that they and everybody who watches a Dateline NBC that's going to talk about near-death experiences, everybody who watches that, even if they're completely disbelieving in near-death experiences, they all have the attitude, look, I'll get off my back, honey. I know you believe in this. I don't. But I'll admit they might be true. And I'll let the evidence said, let's all watch the show. We'll see what the evidence is. Well, that means they're admitting it's possible because nobody would watch a show that was going to prove that archaeologists discovered square circles in Montana. <laughs> because, I mean, you're going to say, I don't need to watch that because there can't be evidence. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. And just like those atheists who let the evidence settle the issue, they were admitting that it is possible that I could survive in the afterlife, but I don't think there's enough evidence that I do. Well, what does that show? It shows not that I survive in the afterlife. That requires evidence, but it shows that I can't be my brain and body since I have a potential 
I am this kind of thing that could very well possibly survive without my brain and body, mm. but that's not true of my brain and body. Mm. They're not even possibly such that they mm. could survive. So I cannot be identical to anything physical because I have a potential that, that nothing physical has. I mm. could survive disembodied. That's number one. Okay, now hold on. Before you go to the second one, I want to make sure people understand that you're making a point that even the concession that near-death experiences are possible, not even actual, is a recognition that a human being in principle could survive their identity intact in a disembodied state. It wouldn't make any sense to say that my brain could survive in a disembodied state, which shows that I'm not just my brain, because there's a distinction here between body and between uh, soul. So just not, not even getting to the evidence, which is where I suggest you're going next, the very idea that people concede and even debate the evidence for near-death experiences rather than just stopping it in the past and saying such a thing is absurd and not possible and can make sense, concedes that we are not identical to our bodies. That's yes. the first one. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Not evidence for an afterlife, but evidence that I'm not my body, I'm a soul. Now, the next one is that the that it is beyond reasonable doubt that near-death experiences are largely true. Uh, there have been something like 300 million people that have had near-death experiences around the world uh, due to statistical analyses. Mm. And we have cases where uh, two research scientists at the at University of Connecticut School of Medicine studied 25 patients that were born blind and had never seen in their lives. They had near-death experiences and they were able to describe in complete detail. Uh, they did not have color words, but they could say bright and dark. Uh, they, they could describe moles and things on, on another person's, on their mother's face that they couldn't feel or know any other way. And so they, they gained sight, but once they came back into their bodies, they lost their ability to see again. And these were research scientists at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. There have been hundreds of cases medically documented where people gain, who, who claim to have had a near-death experience and gain information about mm. things that were going on in the hospital cafeteria or in the, uh, the intensive care unit, which is on the second floor and they were on the first floor, or they could describe crazy details about what happened when they were dead that are later verified by the doctors and nurses and eyewitnesses that there's no way they could have known if, they, if what they'd experienced was just a loss of oxygen to the brain or some kind of dying brain phenomenon that, that happens to people because their brain is dying. There's no way that these could, could be explained that way. And so this provides evidence that people do survive, at, their souls depart their bodies, and they're able to be aware and gain information that is factual and that is verified. And so that this is evidence that life after death is real and that we can't be our, we are our souls. We're not our bodies or brains. JP, I've had our mutual friend Steve Miller on here a couple of times, and I'll link to his interview below. 
we have gone into depth making the case for near-death experiences we don't hear, but if they're even possibly true and then actual, minimally we at least have evidence that a human being is more than matter and that there is a soul or conscience part of the self that continues after the body stops functioning. So one piece of evidence on the column for the soul. Let's move to another piece of evidence here. And this word is big. Some folks might not be tracking with it. So just explain a little bit what it is. It's called the myriological argument for the soul. Well, yes. Um, Persons are all or nothing kinds of things. Either something is a person or it's not a person. There is no sense to, to saying that my sister, Susie, is 75% of a person. She used to be 85%, but now she's down to 75%. Uh, persons can't be divided. I mean, you can't take a person and divide them so you've got a third of a person over here and two-thirds over there. Persons can lose functioning. I could be functioning 75% of what I used to, but it notice it's still me that used to function 100% that's now functioning 75. I am the same in the comparison. But brains and bodies and material objects can be divided into percentages and can come as two thirds. Hmm. I mean, in a table, if you cut a third of it off and separate them, you say, where's the table? And the answer is two thirds of it's over there and a third of it's over there. Well, your brain in many surgeries, uh, they take out 55, 56% of the brain and you're only a 45% of a brain left. And yet when you wake up from surgery, you are a single whole person. If you were your brain, you would be a 45% person. There's a syndrome called Dandy Walker syndrome, which you can go online and actually see x-rays of of a person's head. These are people that have 10% of a brain. The inside of their skull is 90% a sack of fluid. And there's a little about a centimeter thick sheath of brain tissue on the inside of the skull. These people have normal lives. They can function 70 to 80% of a normal person. They get married, have jobs, but they don't have but 10% of a brain. Now, what we, what we know then is that, is that we can't come in percentages but physical objects can, so we can't be physical objects. Another way to put that is to say that if a physical object loses parts and gains new parts, Mm -hmm. it's not the same physical object. Mm -hmm. So I suppose I have a wooden podium I'm lecturing on, and every day one of the janitors comes in and takes a little piece of the podium off and puts it in a closet and replaces it with a with a green little piece of green plastic. So I come in the next day and the desk is the same size and shape, but there's this odd little green plastic part on it. He keeps doing that until all of a sudden 
the podium is entirely made of green plastic parts. It's the same size and shape as the original podium, but the original podium doesn't exist. There's just a bunch of little wooden parts in the closet. And if he takes those and puts them back together to form a podium that looks exactly like the first the original one, and I have to choose as to which one's the original podium, it's clearly gonna be the one that's reassembled because there's no way that you can take a wooden podium and say it's the same thing as one that's totally made out of mm. uh, green plastic. So a physical object can't lose parts and gain parts and literally be the same thing. Mm. It can for popular purposes, but not really. Now, my body is constantly losing cells, including my brain. My brain parts are moving. Uh, atoms in my brain are sloughing off and, and new atoms are being absorbed. And that's true of the cells and the, and the atoms in my body. So from one day to the next, my brain and my body are not literally the same brain and body if we're talking about the whole brain and the whole body. But I am the same person from one day to the next or one minute to the next. How do I know that? Well, first of all, there's nothing more obvious than if I'm humming a tune, and I'm halfway through the first verse, that I am the one who just hummed the first half of the verse, am now humming the middle of the verse, and am anticipating humming the rest of the verse. I be, I'm just aware that I am the same hummer <laughs> through the process of singing that tune. Hmm. And we are just aware that we are the same from one moment to the next, the same self. Another thing would be this. If we are not literally the same person from one day to the next, I should never fear going to the dentist because it will not literally be I that goes to the dentist. It'll be a, a lookalike that has a lot of my memories, but it won't, strictly speaking, be me that goes nor should a person be punished for something that they, a crime they committed a year ago, because they're not literally the same person that committed the crime. Uh, but we all know that it's the same person and that's why we punish them because we know they stole the money. And so my body is not the same from day to day because it gains and loses parts, even though it's pretty much, it looks very much like it, but strictly it's not the same, but I am the same. And therefore I cannot be my brain and body. And I've got to be something that is not physical because I can survive the gain and loss of parts of anything physical that's connected to me, my brain and body and so on. Hmm. I remember when I was doing the MA Phil program, 2000 to 2003 oh my, at Talbot. I know it's been two decades plus since I started, and I've told you this, but my wife said it was one of the most, and we were high school sweethearts, just transformative time for me, which is why I love teaching at Biola and want to get as many students there as, as I can. But I remember in your metaphysics class, you made a point about identity over time, and even our criminal justice system assumes that I am identical to the person who committed a crime. It could Amen. be six months ago. It could be six decades ago. It really could. 
So the body changes and no one's going to be able to give a defense and say, but it wasn't me because I've got gray hair. I've lost some hair. I've gained some weight, lost some weight. No, you are identical amidst the bodily changes. Now, some people will say things like, what about memories? Why can't memories be the source of identity over time? Well, because first of all, I'm aware of being the thing that has memories. I'm not aware of being a bundle of memories. Uh, I just, uh, when I remember scoring a basket in my senior year in high school basketball, that is a memory, but I'm aware that it belongs to me and not you. I'm having the memory. So that means I'm also aware of me in addition to the memory because I'm aware of being different from, but having the memory. That's the first thing. Secondly, I am constantly gaining and losing memories, dude. I mean, uh, uh, I, as I get older, uh, I, I have to be reminded of things by my, my daughters because I forget them. So if, and, and I'm gaining new memories. I mean, two days ago, I didn't have the memories I now have of yesterday because as I go on, I add new memories. So my memories are in a constant state of flux. I'm gaining and losing new memories and they would not, and I'm also, my personality changes slightly. I've, I've over the years developed some new values and some of the values I used to hold, I don't hold to as much anymore. You know, like, you know, physical appearance is not a value that I have like a, perhaps I used to have. So I, I can't just be a, a set of memories and, and personality traits because those things are in constant change. But I'm not. I'm the same person over time. Hmm. What about DNA? DNA arguably is not physical. From the moment of conception, you had DNA and your DNA can't change. Could that ground identity over time? Well, I think I think it's it DNA is very much like smoke is to fire. Smoke is not the same thing as fire, but it's darn good evidence that fire is there. Hmm. And I don't think DNA is identical to is what my identity consists in because I am one thing, but my DNA is all throughout the body. Uh, each mm. cell has DNA and, but I would say DNA is a sufficient test that it's, it's me. Okay. <laughs> but, but, and also, you know, a lot of scientists are starting to say that there's DNA is uh, immaterial. And really, there's only one DNA, and it's it's fully present in all the cells of the body. Uh, so it's kind of fully everywhere. <laughs> well, I mean, that's not matter, because matter is not in different places at the same time. And it sounds an awful lot like Aristotle's soul. So what I want to say is that many of the modern uh, analyses of what information is makes it very, very close to the essence of an Aristotelian soul uh, in the, in the, in the ancient world. And it's, they, they seem to me to be almost interchangeable. Okay. So let's shift to one more positive argument for the soul and then look at some challenges and objections that you also cover in the book. Uh, you hinted at this one earlier, uh, the existence of free will. What do we mean by free will? How do we know we have it? And why does that point towards 
the reality of the soul? Well, by free will, I'm, I'm using what philosophers call libertarian free will, and which studies have shown is the common sense view. Uh, doesn't mean it's right, but it, it, it is the common sense view of what free will amounts to. And that basically means that if I'm deciding whether to raise my hand and vote or just to keep my hand down and not vote, uh, or maybe to go home and watch a ball game instead of sticking around for the vote, at the moment of choice, uh, the choice is completely up to me. I can do either. I can either raise my hand or not raise my hand, and there's nothing that determines that one happened versus the other. The what I choose to do is t entirely within my control. It is the result of me choosing it, and nothing determines it. Because if it's determined by something, then it's not a free choice. That's what we mean by common sense libertarian freedom. The choice is up to me, and I could have done otherwise without anything determining what I do one way or the other. Okay. Now, the problem is that no physical object of any kind, no matter how simple it is, like just a simple tiny rock or how complicated it is, like uh, 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 the, the, a fish's body and all the intricate cells that make it up. If it's a physical object, then it is not free to choose what it's gonna do because physical objects behave according to the laws of physics and chemistry, and what happens, what impinges on the body. So just a silly example, but suppose you have some kind of projectile moving through space. Let's say it's an arrow. Now, if, if, if that arrow is moving at a certain velocity and uh, somebody throws a rock and it hits the arrow, then that arrow is going to move in a specific direction, change directions mm -hmm. at a specific new velocity, dependent entirely on the forces in the laws of uh, contact and gravity and how much mass the rock had that hit the arrow. It doesn't get hit and then, and then somehow decide and I'm going to go a different direction this time. Sure. Now, even if the laws uh, of quantum physics are indeterminist, that that's, doesn't matter because a free choice has got to be self-determined. It's not enough for it to be random. Because if I just randomly one day in my arm, I had a nervous twitch in my arm randomly, just shot out and popped some guy in the face... I wouldn't be responsible. It would be, that would have been a random accident. A free choice has got to be one I choose. So random quantum events can't explain free will and responsibility because they're not self-chosen, they're random. The other thing is that if quantum events and quantum laws are indeterministic, then at, e at least the universe at some time and the laws of quantum nature fix the probabilities of what's going to happen next. At least they do that. Okay. 
uh, but but if I choose to act, that's unless there's somebody holding my arm down, that there's a hundred percent chance that's going to happen, uh, uh, unless I'm disabled in some sense. And so there's sure. not, it's not probabilistic once the choice is made. Now whether I choose or not is probably going to depend upon how I see things and you know if I have weakness of will or what have you. So the bottom line is this, if I'm, a, if I'm my brain or my body, then I'm governed by the, the laws of nature and, and what impinges on me. That's not self-choice or, or, or self-responsibility. In order to have that or libertarian freedom, I have to transcend the laws of nature and be able to act into the natural world from a standpoint above and not determined by it. And that would be possible if I were a transcendent soul. But if I'm not, then then free will, as we obviously self-evidently know it to be, in my opinion, is just ridiculous. Nobody's responsible for anything. Hmm. So now, of course, it's possible that we live in a universe in which we just think that we have free will. It's an illusion and we're not actually responsible for anything. But I, I suspect you would push back and say, but nobody really believes that. Nobody thinks that. Nobody lives that way. So it seems like a worldview that can account for free will at least has a check mark on its side versus one that can't. Is that where that, you would go in response? I would absolutely say that. And I would also add <clears throat> that if we don't have free will, nobody could affirm that. Nobody could ever say it. Hmm. Because if there's no free will, then rationality is gone. Hmm. And here's why. Consider that you're deliberating about a problem you're trying to solve. And you're, you're looking at the problem and you're weighing the evidence on one side and the arguments on the other and you go through a process of deliberation and you end up drawing what you think is the best conclusion possible. And you say, I think the answer is A. I don't think it's B, I think it's mm -hmm. A. Okay. Now, when you're in that five minute process of weighing both sides and the arguments for and against A and B, you are assuming that you're in a process of reasoning towards the best rational most likely to be true conclusion you could possibly get, right? You're assuming that. And that means that you're assuming that what you're going to conclude has not been determined yet. If you thought that the way you're going to come down on A or B was already determined before you started reasoning about it, what would you be thinking yourself doing in reasoning about? You're assuming that your deliberation is actually going to contribute to the answer you end up with, right? And that it hasn't, that you're going to decide it once you've got all the evidence before you and make your best choice. So if determinism is true, or if there's no libertarian freedom, then there is no such thing as de deliberating about what you're going to do. That's what you end up is already set in concrete by factors before you even started thinking about it mm. that were outside your control. So rationality 
presupposes a debt to freedom. And so if a person denies libertarian freedom, they can't do so rationally because they're undercutting a necessary condition for there to be rationality in the first place. And thus, they ought to remain silent because they can't trust anything they say to be true. The entire moral enterprise rests upon free will as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, we hold people to be worthy of punishment or praise. I mean, you take somebody who has a high paying job, but they sacrifice and go into the inner city in a very dangerous area and they start teaching seventh grade uh, math at a, at a, at a rundown uh, kind of a rough school. And they do that for 25 years and retire. Now that person is worthy of a tremendous amount of respect and praise. Uh, right? I mean, I, I think it would be a legitimate mm -hmm. thing if they're a believer for the church to bring that person in front of the congregation yep. and say, Joe is retiring at the end of this year. This is what this man's done. Let's have a fe celebratory feast for him. But that is assuming that he's worthy of praise. Hmm. But that assumes that he could have done otherwise. And the fact that he went down and did that for 25 years was due to a choice that he freely made. And it wasn't that he was determined by forces outside of his control. If we knew that he had been drugged and somehow these drugs that he was given every day determined that he would have to do that and it wasn't his choice, we would no longer praise him. Same with punishment. We only punish because we think that people had a choice in the matter and they made a bad choice and thus it's on them. We've looked at a few positive evidences for the soul. We've talked about the seemings that is universal and strong. We've talked about the muriological argument, how identity stays the same over time, which points towards something non-physical. We've talked about the possibility and arguably actuality of near-death experiences. And then we just talked about free will, which is tied to the moral project and rationality. Each of these points towards the soul. Now, in your book, The Substance of Consciousness, you have other positive arguments for the soul. But for sake of time, let's start moving towards some of the other explanations for the soul and why you would critique them. What, and by the way, those of you watching, uh, we're going to come together live on Friday, this Friday. Take your toughest question. So if you write question or comment, succinctly write your question in there. And I will give to JP the toughest questions that are there as long as I can understand them and as long as they're on topic. So one of the explanations, you hinted at this earlier, uh, within a naturalistic worldview is what's called emergence. That maybe consciousness is just an epiphenomenon. I mean, H2O, when you have that, when you have hydrogen and oxygen together, you get this new property that emerges that is, say, wetness. Maybe consciousness is a similar kind of thing. Your take. Very good. Well, the, the first problem is that consciousness is not, uh, emergence is not a solution. It's just a name for the thing that needs to be solved. Hmm. It, it is what, it's the problem. And so by appealing to emergence, 
all you're doing is naming the fact that consciousness at at certain point shows up but that doesn't answer why uh so it's really not a solution it's just a state a name for the problem another reason it's not a solution is because if you believe that emergence is somehow a, a, a fact about the world, then it ends up being what philosophers and scientists call a brute fact. Hmm. A brute fact is a fact that has no further explanation. It just is. Uh, how do, why does emergence t- of consciousness take place at that time? It just does. That's all. It just does. There's no explanation. So it's the announcing of a fact that in principle cannot be explained by science or by anything else. So it turns out then to just be a hear ye, hear ye, emergence is a fact. And that's all it is, because no evidence can, in principle, be given on its behalf due to its nature as a brute fact. Mm. Third, it's a case of getting something out of nothing. If you start with brute matter, which is the way what physicalists mean by brute by matter, that means that matter doesn't even have the potentiality for consciousness. So the question is, how is it that you take brute matter that is fully characterized by the properties of mass and shape and size and positive and negative charge and all that, and you rearrange it in space to make it a more complicated arrangement, and all of a sudden, out of nothing, consciousness emerges? That's that's a case of ex nihilo. And if consciousness appeared out of nothing, then there would be no reason why a pain emerged as opposed to a thought about uh, Abraham Lincoln, because it's a brute fact. So it would be very, it would be a miracle that every time your brain was in the same state, the same conscious state showed up. Uh, there, there should be absolutely no correlations between the two, because there, there's nothing to explain it. It's just a brute happening with no further explanation. But here's uh, here's another problem besides getting something from nothing, uh, and that is a, a, a problem that the ancient Greeks called the Sorites problem, S-O-R-I-T-E-S. And that worked these cases where you have a guy with a full head of hair, and you say, if I took one strand of hair away, would he be bald? No. How about another one? No, no. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like you could keep taking another hair out of his head forever and he'd never end up being bald but we all know the difference between a bald head and a head of full head of hair the problem is that there is no it's hard to pinpoint a place where they go from being bald to Mm. not now let's suppose that as the emergentists believe that consciousness emerges when the brain reaches the right level of complexity. Now, that, let's call that level, level N. N is the level the brain has to be at before consciousness emerges on the brain. N is composed of literally trillions of atoms and molecules, 
hundreds of billions of neurons, multitudes of cells, all in a very, very specific structure. With respect, it's not just a scattered group of neurons that are scattered on a table, they have to be put into the right structure. Hmm. Now, this is on the order of trillions of things that constitute the quote, right level of complexity. And let's add up all the subatomic particles and say there are n number of them. And that includes the precise different parts of the structure they have to be in. Okay. When n obtains, boom, consciousness. Well, what if we had one less electron? So that the structure is now instead of uh, 3 trillion, it's 2,999,999, blah, blah, blah. It's one less than 3 trillion. Why couldn't consciousness emerge at n minus 1? Because those are so, they're almost exactly identical. I mean, why one additional electron and you get consciousness, but with one less, you don't. So you say, well, okay, there. Well, how about one less from that? You see where this is going. Right. At some point, the, the emergentist is going to have to say this. There is some point, I don't know where it is, but if you remove one single electron from the billions that are there, you will have consciousness disappear and there will be no consciousness at all. Now, that is making a huge effect, the presence and then the absence of consciousness itself, depend on the change of an absolutely minuscule cause. The removal of one ultimate tiny particle, which would be compared to the billions that would have to still be there, because you can't have consciousness with 100,000 you know, brain cells. So the point is that it, it just seems utterly arbitrary mm. to say that, well, this is the right level and that's when things emerge. There's a better solution. And that's to say that consciousness always belongs to a soul or a mind or a self. Mm. It doesn't emerge on the brain. And though it needs the body to be functioning to some degree or other, in order for the soul to work while you're in the body, like a driver in a car. If the steering wheel doesn't work, he won't be able to get around town if he's locked in the front seat, but that doesn't prove he's the car. Same with being in the body. If it's broken down, I might not be able to do certain things like remember yesterday, but that doesn't prove on my brain. So when we talk about emergence, you've given a few critiques of this, that you're getting something from nothing. It's what needs to be explained. It's not an explanation of how it does so. The Sorites problem. But what if we concede that you do get consciousness? It would seem that whatever emerges is dependent upon its physical base. And thus there's bottom-up causation. And you couldn't have top-down causation through thinking, through rationality and acting, which is the very thing consciousness has to explain. Is that just another level of difficulty oh, yes. or challenge? Okay. I'm so glad that you brought that up because the problem of so-called top-down causation has been a horrible problem. Hmm. And it really has not been solved yet, though some think they have, but they really haven't because they 
They change what it means by the top causing things. They fudge the word. So no, and if, if consciousness is epiphenomenal, that means the brain causes conscious properties and states to emerge, but then it's, it, it doesn't in turn cause anything, then once again, rationality is gone by the board. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at what we're doing right now. We're having a discussion and we're presenting arguments for and against things because we think that the contents of our thoughts and beliefs could change someone's mind. It could bring about an effect. Somebody might change their position, right? Because they grasped the content and they chose based upon the reasoning to to hold to a new view now. Why would anybody waste time giving a talk or write a book or a journal article or give a college lecture if they believed that the contents of their thoughts and assertions had no effect on anybody? What would be the point of making an utterance? So epiphenomenalism makes what we do in arguing and reasoning and lecturing pointless Hmm. because it doesn't do anything. JP, one of your critiques of emergence is that it just is turned into a brute fact. Now, I think everybody in this discussion, correct me if I'm wrong, panpsychists, naturalists, at some point have to have certain brute facts. Yes, I do believe in the book that you wrote with uh, William and Craig, Philosophical Foundations for Christian Worldview, when the question of causal interaction came up in terms of if we are body and soul, how does this immaterial and material substances interact? One explanation was that it might just be a brute fact. So why is a brute fact not okay with emergence, but then it's potentially okay when it comes to causal interaction? That is a great question. And um, you, what you do, do not want what are, what, what are called contingent brute facts. Uh, you, uh, except in, 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 in the case that they avoid a vicious infinite regress. And, and then you can postulate a brute fact because it, invo- it saves you having to be stuck with a vicious regress. And so we postulate there's a first cause, God, who doesn't need another cause as a necessary brute fact, because if we don't, you end up with a vicious infinite regress where nothing would exist. And I can't explain that in more detail, but let's suppose that a situation involves a vicious infinite regress. That's the time to posit a brute fact because it avoids an embarrassing rational problem, a vicious infinite regress. Now this interaction of soul to uh, mind to body, suppose you say it has to happen through a physical intermediary. Well, then how does the soul interact with that physical intermediary? (laughs) Well, there's got to be another intermediary that it operates. You get a vicious infinite regress. So establishing that the interaction is just a primitive brute fact and it's direct and there is no further intermediary is the best solution to avoid an infinite regress. Because we all know that I can raise my arm. And when I get stuck with a pin, I'll tell you, I feel pain. I don't know about you. But uh, so there is causal interaction. And, uh, and if you have a vicious infinite regress between mind and body, they can't get to each other. 
So that is when you do it. But with emergence, um, there is no there is no problem of some intermediary because they just announced that it's it is just a when matter reaches a certain level of complexity, bingo, it just emerges. And it, it is not postulated to avoid any kind of vicious infinite regress that has to take place between the brain and the conscious state. Uh, so the, these are not parallel cases. Okay. Uh, and, and that's what I would say. And, and by the way, this out of nothing problem is why David Chalmers and others are moving to panpsychism. Mm. Their, their consciousness emerges from little particles of matter already having consciousness. Now, at least that solves the problem of getting something out of nothing. It, it raises other problems, like how do you take a bunch of little conscious things and put them together into unified single mm. consciousness? But at least it solves the ex nihilo problem and the fact that panpsychism is on the move shows that there is a problem with naturalism. Mm. And it's got to solved. I want you to flesh this out a little bit because this is going to be one of the next questions I asked is panpsychism is this idea that kind of soulish material is built into matter uh, on some level. I heard Philip Goth, who's written some books on this and defended it. He said, we don't really know what matter is. And there's something mysterious about it. Maybe there's this mental element, so to speak, that's a part of it. Okay, so your first point that makes sense is this is a pushback against naturalism, that everything is purely physical in the way we've taken it to be. I want you to flesh this out a little bit because it seems to me one of the biggest problems with panpsychism is what you referred to, not by name, the combination problem. Explain in a little bit more depth what that problem is and why it's particularly pointed for panpsychism. Well, well, consciousness comes in, in, in a unity. Uh, right now, I have a visual field and I can see a, a painting. I can see your face. I can see the closet over here. And I, right now, I am seeing... 150 different things all at once in my one single visual field. Now, I, I, it's not as though I am 150 different selves where one self is constantly looking at that picture. Another self has the sad task of constantly looking at your face. Another is constantly looking over here at the vase. No, I am one single self that brings all of these different objects into one unified experience. Mm. We can put that by saying this. Whenever one has an experience of A, let's say a table, at the same time, one has an experience of B, the chair. So there is a what it's like to see A, and there's a what it's like to see B. There will always be a third experience called a totalizing or unifying experience. And that's what it's like to see A and B taken together. Now, the best explanation for what unifies experience is that there is a simple single self or I or ego that unifies all of these different Aspects of my experience 
into the experience of one single subjective substance, a soul. The, the panpsychist has all these individual little unified consciousnesses, and somehow by bringing them together, you end up with this big single unified conscious being mm. and it's not clear why you wouldn't just have a crowd of individual consciousness conscious beings just herded closer together <laughs> mm. you know, but there would still be a multiplicity of individual conscious subjects you can't get one from many that's the problem yeah, that's, that makes sense. Like, it doesn't matter how close you and I get, there's still distinct individual yeah. consciousness, but there's not one that unites yeah. us. Uh, by the way, I love that you gave me a hard time a minute ago. I don't know if you remember this, but our, our first, my first class in metaphysics was probably 2000 with you. Yeah. Two of our colleagues now at Talbot, Tim Pickavance and I think Kyle Strobel was in there. And I raised my hand. I made some contribution. You said, that's really good, Sean. I appreciate that. And you paused and you said something like, it's about time you joined the class. I was wondering when you, and you just <laughs> rode me, humbled me. And I thought, man, I got a long ways to go, but it was all in love, uh, which was fun. Tim reminded me of that the other day. He goes, hey, you remember the time a couple of decades ago? I was like, I remember. I was scarred. No, that's you not You know, true. who needs friends when you got enemies like Tim, you know? <laughs> e e exactly. That was fun. Okay, now you mentioned that there's this unity of consciousness that ties things together. Hume had what was called a phenomenological report where he kind of said, I don't see this enduring self through time. Rather, it's just this series of experiences over time. What did Hume mean and yes. why do you think he's misguided there? Well, Hume believed that the only thing that existed were little patches of sensations like a little patch of red and a little patch of sweetness and a little patch of round. And when you put all those little sensations together, you ended up with, with something like an apple. So Hume said, when I enter most deeply within myself, that means when I go in within introspect, I, I always confront this sensation, he called them idea, this sensation or that sensation, so a little taste of sweet or a little taste of salt or a sour or a little smell of uh, pungency or a little patch of color, what have you. But I never come across any experience of my I or my mm -hmm. ego. Uh, so I conclude that I have no, since it's outside my experience, I have no reason to believe in it. And I must just be a series of sensory experiences through time without any self or solar ego sustaining and unifying them. All right, that's what he meant. Now, the problem is, how did Hume know whose stream of consciousness he hmm. was entering into? Hmm. Suppose he did this in a room with 20 people and you have 20 streams of consciousness going on at the same time in that room. You understand they're all awake. Mm -hmm. There are 20 flows of consciousness occurring in the room. Hume says I entered most deeply within myself. So he thought that he was attending to the flow of listen to this, his consciousness. 
But how did he know he wasn't poking around in some other person's consciousness hmm. instead of his own? You see, the reason, the way he knew that he was looking into his consciousness is because, first of all, he was aware of himself, and subsequently, he was aware of the states of consciousness mm. that belonged to him. So in order for him to recognize of these 20 streams of consciousness, which one's mine, I first have to have an experiential awareness of my substantial bearer or, or, or owner of consciousness, that is myself or I or ego or soul, call it what you want. And then I'm aware of which experiences belong to my self or soul. Now, Hume's problem was that he limited experience to the five senses. Mm. But we experience things that go far beyond that. We experience our own conscious states, for example. When I'm having a thought, I'm directly aware of what that thought is, even though I can't see, touch, taste, smell, or hear it. We are aware of the laws of logic, mm -hmm. you know, simple laws of logic, and we are aware of ourselves. And I think that explains the hard meta problem of consciousness. This is the reason everybody's dualists is they're just aware of themselves. I'm sorry, but things happen to be aware of themselves. And I think Hume should have expanded experience to count as anything we're aware of, whether it's the senses, we use the senses or not. And I think that was his, that's what he meant by that, and that's the problem with his argument. That, that, that's really helpful. I appreciate that pushback and that clarity because there's a little line in your book that's almost so obvious, but it's important, is you said something effective. There's nothing that would convince you, dear reader, that you are not the same identical person who started reading this book. Amen. You maybe had different thoughts. You maybe had different experiences. Maybe they set it down and we'll come back to it in months. But there is an ongoing eye that continues through, and it's just so obvious. The other point that you make is sometimes people say, well, this, this idea of the eye or the self is invented. And you say it's not that it's invented. Like it's not like Hume invented this self or will at some point go, oh, I have a feeling of hot. Now I have an experience of the eye. The eye is the self that goes over time and has those different experiences and ties them together. It's not an independent experience. It's the one that has the experience. And I thought that was really helpful when you said, for example, like mental things are, are not conscience. They need a mind to kind of ground them, so to speak. Experiences right. need an experiencer. And right. I think the same thing would apply to Hume. All right, one last question for you on this, and I have kind of a personal question for you, and we'll, we'll wrap up. Some might just in turn say, JP, naturalism is simpler. Why not appeal to Occam's razor and not multiply entities beyond what is required to explain reality? You're adding all these spooky, immaterial entities. Let's keep it simple. Well, yes. It, uh, we have to remember that Occam's razor or the epistemological problem of simplicity, which is different than the metaphysical uh, issue of simplicity, but you're stating it. Uh, remember, that's a tiebreaker. It has to, it, it is the last resort 
when all things are equal on both sides. Mm -hmm. And it says, if two theories do an equally good job of explaining the facts, go with the simpler and the, than the uh, theory and not the more complicated one. And that makes common sense. Because what that would, what if you're in that situation where two theories equally explain the facts, then the excess baggage that one theory has is really not doing any good because you can do an equally good job of explaining without it. So lump it off. But what the dualist is going to insist is that all things aren't equal. This gotcha. is not a tie. Uh, and you can't appeal to simplicity at the beginning of the discussion to mm. stop the debate. You got to conclude it once you've made, you've heard all the arguments on both sides and concluded this is 50-50 equal. I'm going with the simpler, and so would I. But I maintain in our book that the arguments for substance dualism are far stronger than the arguments against it and the arguments for physicalism. And so Occam's razor never gets a chance to come on the table. Mm. That's great. So you're all for simplicity when yeah. breaking a tie. But if, if you have a naturalist worldview and it can't explain free will, if it can't explain identity over time, if it can't ground rationality, if right. it can't explain certain phenomena that we know is a part of reality, then simplicity is not going to help you because it's not accounting for all the facts. Once all the facts are accounted for, then let's go with the simplest explanation that does so at that point. That's really helpful. JP, here's kind of a personal question for you. You've been studying this your whole life. This book is a philosophical book with Blackwell, Wiley Blackwell, a leading academic publisher. What does this personally mean to you? Especially, you told me, I hope this is okay, you said you're 75. So I'm guessing as somebody gets older, they think about the afterlife more and more. You've expressed some physical challenges that you faced. Even beyond any of those questions, what does this personally mean for you in your spiritual life? Well, it means so much to me personally because I have, I have believed for years, decades actually, that the church was being harmed because it did not give enough attention to developing the Christian mind and learning how to know why we believe the things we do. And that was hurting us spiritually. Sean, you know me. I believe in prayer and I believe mm -hmm. in the emotions. So I'm not just a, a, an intellectual type guy. But I still think that we've neglected that so much. And, and, and one of the things that I felt like I could do would be to kind of hold down the fort at, at sort of the highest levels of academic inquiry. Mm -hmm. Whereas I believe in every level, we're a team and every level's got, got to be, got to be filled. I have kids in junior high, they need stuff for them. Okay. But, but I'm talking about my calling and this is kind of my magnus opus, I guess you'd say. And Brandon Rickabaugh, that book would have never been done without him. He was, he was such a great colleague. And just because you've been interviewing me, we've been sort of talking like I wrote it, but it really was the joint effort of mm. both of us. But it, it, it is kind of my chance before I die to say that I believe I, I, I sort of left 
I, I sort of dropped this little bomb out there <laughs> uh, in in the other guy's territory, and it's going to ex- keep exploding, you know, and hmm. they're going to have to deal with it. And it's hmm. going to strengthen Christians who go to grad school and or who are really thankful, thoughtful Christians who like to read philosophy. Hmm. And I think I've given them a gift that is maybe the culmination of a lot of what my life has been about. Hmm. And so it, it, uh, it means a lot to me to see the Lord honor this. And I'm excited to, to see what he might do with it. It's going to be exciting. Friends, if you're watching this one way, you can honor JP and his lifetime effort here is to get a copy of the book, share it with a friend, uh, share this video and this interview with others, Christians or with skeptics to help spread the word. It's a good time to be an apologetics, JP. We have Gary Habermas making his lifetime contribution on the resurrection, Bill Craig doing a philosophical theology from his lifetime. These are very important contributions. Can't thank you enough. Now, before we sign off and come back Friday, want to make sure folks hit subscribe. We've got some other shows on all sorts of topics related to apologetics, worldview, culture, uh, sexuality, the afterlife coming up. You will not want to miss them. And think about studying with uh, JP and I at Biola. I'm specifically in the Talbot Apologetics Program. He's distinctly in the M.A. Phil Philosophy of Religion Program. Both can be done completely by distance. There's information below. Check it out. As I've said many times, uh, that MA Phil program was life-changing for me, and I hope folks will check it out. JP, I will gather up the tough questions for you, and we will be back Friday to do this live. Thanks for joining me. Really, really well done. My privilege, my friend.